0: I'm sorry. Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Preparis. Uh, not joining me is Brenna Calvert, but I do have another special guest this week. This week's episode is brought to you by Ufos. So if you're racing long or racing hard with, like we do with OCR and you're looking to recover, check out Ufos. They have sandals and shoes that promote recovery. So they have their own foam. It's called Ufoam. Uh, the name comes from when people put on the shoes or the sandals. They typically go, ooh, because it's so soft, right? So what's cool about this foam is it absorbs more impact per step. So compared to traditional running shoe foam, it absorbs 37% more impact, uh, which means you're going to recover faster because there's less impact on your feet after uh, these long endurance events. So if you're looking for a great gift, whether that be for an athlete, an OCR athlete, or just a family member that wants to walk around in some comfortable sandals, uh, check out Ufos. Their website is ufos.com, O-O-F-O-S.com. This week, joining me on the show, I have Allison Tai. If you don't know who Allison Tai is, you're probably not paying attention to the world of ultra-distance obstacle course racing, because she is one of the best there is. Uh, She won the Spartan Point Series in 2015. Uh, She's won every Ultra Beast she's ever raced, which includes two Ultra Beast finishes in one week, which was Tahoe and Sun Peak, She's also won the Toughest Mudder Series this year, um, I think racing five out of the six events and coming in first a couple times and second a couple times. And then she also won the Holy Grail this year as well as two second-place finishes at World's Toughest Mudder. So, Allison, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: So I'm really glad we got you on the show because I've been wanting to get you on for a while. And every time I was about to message you, uh, Will Hicks would bring you on the show on his World's Toughest Podcast, and I'd be like, "All right, well, let me give it some time then." So,
1: yeah, I seem to be on that show quite a bit. I love Will Hicks. I love the um, the podcast, and it's always just fun to be on that one. But yeah, I do feel like I've uh, I've had my fair share of um, toughest or world toughest mother podcast time. That is for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I actually just had another I well, I'm not going sh- I'm not sure if it's going to be released after or before this, but I just interviewed Marco Bedard, and I was telling him that you know, it's weird coming from, yeah, you know, originally I was outside the sport looking in, so I was looking at all these top athletes and then I entered the sport and doing pretty well, especially at the ultra distance um races. So it was weird going from like you know, fan of the sport to competitive athlete in the sport and then friends with some of the top athletes. And I'm going to put it out there that you are my favorite OCR female athlete, period.
1: Oh my gosh, that's, that's very sweet. Um, especially just given the, uh, the amount of just amazing characters we have out there for female athletes in the sport. And it's like a huge reason why I'm just so um so proud to be a part of the sport it's just the people that are involved in it you know like we have some people that are kind of outliers um and aren't necessarily built the same way as the rest of us but um yeah I just think uh there's some really really cool people involved in the sport most people are really humble and just really down to earth and um here because we love the sport so yeah it uh, definitely makes that for a very interesting dynamic uh with the community
0: yeah, absolutely. Although I will say that when you're racing against my teammates, I do for cheer for them. So total total transparency here.
1: Oh yeah, that's fair enough.
0: <laughs> um, anyway, so we 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 have Allison on the show um, not only because she's had an incredible season, but because she's going to the Spartan Ultra World Championships in Iceland in about ten days. So what we're going to do is something a little bit different. So we're actually going to record half of this episode now before the race. And then after she gets back, we're going to record the other half so you can kind of see her expectations going into the race. And then we can talk about the results and how those actually played out all in one episode uh, for you, the listener. Cool. So before we get into that, let's talk about some of your background in endurance sports. So give us a quick rundown of kind of where, where you came from and then kind of how you got into ultra OCR.
1: Uh, okay, so basically I was not active at all growing up. I actually only got into running to kind of lose weight when I went back to college as a um, mature student, so I started just kind of jogging like your local 5 and 10K, and then I went and saw this Canadian death race. A bunch of my friends um, were were doing it as lakes, right, the relay style, so it's 125 kilometers. I'm not really sure what that equals miles-wise, but um, a lot. I think probably 80 miles or something like that. And um, so they break it down into legs. And uh, I was just watching the first place man and he was just cruising through and he just looked like he was on this like incredible, amazing adventure. And uh, although I was like horrifically sedentary as a child, I did a lot of hiking. Um, so I'm from northern Alberta and we did a lot of like hiking and stuff in the Rocky Mountains when I was young. And uh, it just kind of brought that back home for me, just that being out there and uh, adventuring in the mountains and the outdoors and kind of you against the elements. So Anywho, I went back that next year, and uh, basically I went from like I think my longest uh, run was a 10k to doing this 125 kilometer race solo. Um, and then I did a little bit of ultra marathon, kind of found my way into Ironman, did a couple of Ironman, and uh, really got into that. And then, as those of you who know my story, I got hit by a truck and uh, kind of taken right out of uh, activity at all for the next year. Broke my back, my arm, my pelvis, whole bunch of nerve damage, that stuff. So. Uh, it took a while to get back, and I had unfortunately really severe damage in my left hand, and I couldn't feel it for like a year and a half. Couldn't move it at all. I had shattered my radial nerve, um, so I couldn't swim, and it was really frustrating because um, when I when I'd stroke with my left hand, it would just kind of plunk into the water and almost send me shooting backwards. So it really kind of got me out of triathlon, but then back to my real passion, which was running, and particularly on the trails and in the mountains and uh, whatnot. Moved to Vancouver, and uh, we started this running store, and the owner made me do this Warrior Dash thing. And I was like, oh, this is so lame. I don't want to do this, like, mud run thing. and But I went out there, and I just loved it. like that was 2011, so the first Warrior Dash they had here. And, yeah, I honestly just haven't looked back since. I was doing a lot of, like, rehab and cross-training and a little bit of CrossFit at that time just because of all the injuries I had sustained. So I think it set me up pretty well to go into obstacle course racing just because I was a lot more diverse than I had been before my accident when all I was doing was running basically in a straight line and swimming I guess (laughs) riding in a straight line but yeah it got me doing a whole bunch more stuff and that just really translated well to obstacle course racing
0: cool and then when did you switch over to kind of the ultra distance obstacle course racing How how did that transition occur
1: well, I've always just – I'm not fast. I have um zero speed or power in my entire body, which anybody who has ever seen me try to do Everest or has had to haul my butt over um, has <laughs> seen, like, witness firsthand. Um, so basically I have, like, one speed on or off kind of thing. So I've always kind of gravitated toward long-distance stuff, even when I did triathlon – oh, sorry, my phone's going. Um Even when I went into – I know, right, the funny ringtone. Um, but um even when I went into – track lawn, I didn't go into your sprint or Olympic distance I went straight to Ironman so when I went into uh, obstacle course racing I you know I did that warrior dash and, and whatever and then I was like okay instantly what is the longest event I can do because um that's always going to be kind of my happy place where I can just jog along all day and have this adventure so yeah it just kind of naturally went there I can't remember the first um race I did it was probably the Sun Peaks Ultra Beast because that was one of the first Ultra Beasts there was. Um, so I don't know what year that was, but it was definitely, as soon as I got into obstacle course racing, I gravitated right to that long stuff.
0: Right on. So before we get into your expectations for Iceland and kind of some information about that event, um, you just finished second at World's Toughest Motor, which was November 11th-ish, something like that. Uh, what is your training... And schedule been like since World's Toughest Mudder? Because I know personally, I get sick immediately after the race every year and I'm pretty much out of commission for about two weeks.
1: Yeah, I I had a a rough week kind of there right after the race, but I had planned, anyways, to take it totally off and, you know, like the traveling back home, we went to Disneyland, all that stuff. So I totally took off training for the week and then I came back and I probably ran a little hard and my hip felt funny. So I ended up taking the entire following week off of any like impact stuff so i did a lot of um my my coach is yancy cult and uh, he's just phenomenal about um being able to really vary the training which is particularly good for an older athlete like myself um and somebody who's had such a big orthopedic um past in or big past in orthopedic injury just with so many injuries in my body so um did a bunch of incline training and cycling and stuff like that and uh, now we're just kind of uh, tapering back down for the race and doing a lot of like, you know, sharp, um, just getting the body back and, and getting it feeling race ready. So yeah, focusing a lot more on less impact. I'm back to running. My hip feels great. I feel great. Um, so this has been a really quick turnover. And I think in my mind, I was like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous that I didn't even sign up for Iceland until after World's Toughest because I really wanted to see how my body would recover and react. But in my mind, that period was just so short that it almost feels like it's surprisingly long. You know, it's just kind of like your perception of that. So, so since I had this in my mind that it was just such a short turnaround, it, it's actually feeling like this period between is a lot longer.
0: Yeah, well, I know for me personally, like between, or like that final two weeks leading up to World's Toughest, I feel like every day drags on because I just kind of, I wanted to like get out there and kind of get it over with. So I don't know, maybe that, maybe that helps a little bit. You're kind of looking forward to the big race in uh, Iceland.
1: Yeah, it's weird how it just kind of warps time, right? Like that last week before the race seems so long, like you have, (laughs) like it just adds years to your life, I'm sure, to have these huge races on your calendar.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think most of our listeners are fairly familiar with World's Toughest Mudder in the five mile format with like 21 ish obstacles and kind of the first hours penalty free or I'm sorry, obstacle free. So I know they started releasing details about the Iceland race. So let's go with start off with, you know, what what do you know about Iceland? And, you know, kind of as you go through, kind of compare that to uh, World's Toughest Mudder so people have a reference point.
1: So, um, Las Vegas in November has very limited hours of daylight. Um, that is sure. And, and it does feel like most of the race is in the dark. But in Iceland, most of the race is actually in the dark. So I think that they have about three hours of daylight and 21 hours of darkness. So there is the big, um, difference. Plus, it's going to be a heck of a lot colder. But then the kind of neat thing is that the cold is, um, is very predictable. So you're not gonna see a huge amount of weather fluctuation and temperature fluctuation like you did in the desert. It's gonna be very consistent and very steady. So I think it's gonna be a lot easier to prepare because um, the weather's probably not gonna change greatly. That being said, you know, like the wind can blow in, it could start raining, it could start snowing, it's kind of right around that zero degree uh, mark where anything can kind of happen. And it's just known for being a very harsh environment. So we're definitely gonna have to deal with some weather Um, so I think, you know, people are just preparing as best they can for that, but Spartan has released that they're not going to have us in and out of water. So that'll be a big change also from world's toughest because one of the big, uh, reasons you get so cold at WTM is just because you're constantly being submerged in water. So that's not going to happen here. So you see a lot of people that are doing more like, like cross country ski style gear rather than the wetsuit type stuff. That being said, I mean, we're still going to be crawling and the ground's going to be wet, right? So, and if it rains or sleets, we're still going to get wet. So I think, um, you know, in my perspective, it's best to prepare for being wet because I know even on those low crawls, if there's any amount of water on the ground, you're still going to get water all the way down your front and and still get pretty wet. And there's also going to be some thermal stream crossings and whatnot. And they're, you know, they're saying that it's going to be up to your knees, so... Who knows? I guess it depends how tall you are. Um, but you're still going to get wet. The weather is definitely going to be a huge factor. Uh, the elevation in the course, uh, it's also substantially bigger in Iceland. So I think it was, oh, man, like, whatever, 300? You probably know this way better than me. Um, 300 per lap at World's Toughest Mudder, and I think it's, like, nearly 600 at Iceland. So I think it's, like, about double per lap, and the laps are actually six miles and not five. Which is a bit weird. <laughs> so, and I think you're not going to have as many technical like grip obstacles, um, and that's going to be a big change as well.
0: So for the, for those of us listening from America, she was referencing meters, not feet. So, world's toughest mutter was about 850 feet per per lap, and Iceland, I think, is it was something like sixteen or um, sixteen or seventeen hundred feet per lap, but
1: there you go, half. <laughs> something like that. We'll go with that. It's so funny because I don't understand Fahrenheit or I kind of understand feet. Um, but yeah, I'm always <laughs> talking meters and Celsius. I really don't understand Fahrenheit when people start, you know, there's some formula, but I'm not good enough. I understand miles and kilometers though. So I've figured that one out. So well, yes, there's going to be a lot more elevation. Um, and I think it's probably going to be, you know, this typical Spartan where it's based on heavy carries.
0: Well, I'm, I'm from America, but I also agree that. Meters and kilometers is a much better system, but uh, we've already sunk in too much money into feet and miles, so that's what we're stuck with.
1: Yeah, um, keep it up. Well, it's good to do both, right? It keeps the brain sharp.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I know you mentioned you know, kind of preparing for everything. Um, and again, this is coming out before the actual race goes on. So, what are you planning on wearing to start the race off with, right? Because there's a, as I'm tracking, there's a essentially a 5k or three-mile penalty-free run at the beginning, or I'm sorry, obstacle-free run at the beginning, and then you go into the six-mile loops with the 16-ish obstacles.
1: Yeah, and I believe that first 5K is through the town and uh, fairly flat. So I think that should be really neat because part of the reason why, um, you know, you're so excited to go to a new places to kind of experience the culture and kind of immerse yourself in the way that they live so and uh, for me it's going to be a very uh, short trip so being able to see the town that way is going to be really neat um, and it should be daylight at that time so we should actually see some things but so I'm going to start off just with a merino wool base layer and um, maybe like you know they always say base layer insulative layer and then a wind proofer at the top so I'm just going to wear you know your basic merino wool um, base layer and then, um, just a shell on the bottom, waterproof shell on the bottom. And then I have a little, like, like just a very light insulative layer for a jacket. And then I'll, I'll put the, um, the waterproof, windproof jacket on top of that. Just a really light one. And then I have heavier stuff if I need it. But I'm definitely going to start off, you know, with my lighter stuff. And, uh, if I get wet, then I have stuff to change. Cause um i I do think that might be a factor if you get wet and it's that cold even if it is just groundwater you're going to be miserable
0: all right so we're going to put on our look into our crystal ball for a minute and try to predict the future and then kind of see how accurate we are on the second part of this podcast so who let's start off with what do you think the winning mileage will be for men and for women because I know, I mean, obviously there's a big, there's a lot more elevation change, but at the same time there's less obstacles. But at the same time, some of those obstacles may take longer, right? Like a bucket carry is going to slow you down a little more than a, you know, set of monkey bars per se. So, um, yeah, what do you think the winning mileage will be?
1: Uh, I for the men, I, I'd say 90 to 100. It's super weird, right, with the six-mile loops, because you don't actually run 100 miles. You're running, you know, whatever that. <laughs> yeah division is in six so you know you're actually gonna have to run over that so I would say somewhere between 90 to 100 for men and 80 to 90 for women can I have a huge range like that
0: sure I was gonna go I was gonna go with 80 for women and 90 for men that's what I was gonna yeah. go with yeah so okay. I, I was going towards the lower end of that due to the um, elevation change. And then I also think, um, yeah, I think, you know, with the term between World's Toughest and this, uh, like I know Robert Killian's planning on doing both, right? Or list on time check checked, he was. Mm-hmm. And then you're doing both. Um, I think you might see a small degradation in performance based off how close they are together. Just, just oh, absolutely. Might, just, just
1: physiologically, just, that's just, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And then just with the terrain, the fact that uh, loops are six miles, the heavy carries... Um, and then just the technicality of running on lava rocks, it might not be, you know, maybe slick, so we're going to see, uh, just vastly different terrain than in World's Toughest Mudder and with the heavy carries, it might, uh, it might slow people down. I, I don't think 100 miles is, is super doable, you know, in this course, but, uh, Killian is also an absolute machine, so who knows?
0: Yeah, the, um, what was I going to say? Uh... Yeah, again, kind of like so many factors that it's really hard to predict. I know, for example, I did a True Grit Enduro 2.4 this past year, and I think the winner comes in at like 85 or 86 miles. Um, Even though you look at the elevation change on the course and it looks real low, but in the middle of the course there's like a mile water movement that's like (laughs) knee to waist deep that really slows down your pace. Wow. a lot of factors that could uh, play into the overall mileage. And then we'll do one more kind of future prediction before we call it for this podcast and pick it up in part two. Um, based off who you know is going, because uh, I'm not I'm not tracking everyone super well, who do you think let's, – let's go with top three men. Let, let's get some predictions here.
1: So I don't know everybody who's going. <laughs> I, I, I probably um... – I'm more out of the loop uh, in terms of who's going to be showing up at this one than WTM. But um, I do know that, obviously, Robert Killian is planning on going, and uh, that guy's a machine, and he is going to put in as many miles as he possibly can. So he's definitely going to be on the podium pending some injury there. And uh, Mark Jones, I know, is also going. So I expect to see them both on the podium. And I'm not sure in terms of who else is going to be there for the men.
0: Okay, I, that, I would agree with both those predictions. I think those are both very strong contenders, obviously both with a military background. So if you read my article, Military Vets at World's Toughest Mudder, uh, both, that article references both of them. Now let's move on to ladies. Let's take yourself out of the equation. I'm going to make the bold prediction that you're going to win. Um, so let's remove you. Let's go with the next three females on the list. Who do you think's going to be up there?
1: Well, I know Morgan McKay is going, and uh, she climbs well. She does obstacles really well. Unfortunately, she suffered a uh, fall in the earlier hours of World's Toughest Mudder. So, I think she's definitely going to be someone to watch for. Uh, she's not going to have the same level of fatigue as the athletes that went into the full 24 hours at World's Toughest. But who knows? You know how her injury affected her. It seems like she just um, it was one of those like injuries that's very dramatic at the time, and then she bounced back. So, I definitely. Um, we'll see her up there. Uh, Casey Northup, I know, is going. And then in terms of both the men and the women, actually, I think Novakovich is going. Hey, did I see that? He's an amazing climber, and I expect him to do well um, for the men's side. But we don't really know who's coming over from Europe, right? There's some amazing trail runners there, some amazing obstacle course racers. And I don't know if we're, um, if everybody knows exactly who's coming, right? So I don't really want to call them dark horses, but you're going to have probably a lot of very high level European athletes just going out there and crushing the course. So I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, how the podium shakes out.
0: Cool. Well, uh, again, I agree. I think I think those are all good picks uh, before we get going for part one. Uh, let's talk about Van City OCR real quick. So give me some give me some details on that.
1: Uh, yeah, so that is a uh, obstacle gym that I started uh, with this other fellow. So he's really into, like, the Ninja Warrior-style short, explosive stuff, and obviously I'm into the very opposite thing. So we um, started this gym. It's, you know, kind of rainy and dark here in the winter months, and we needed an indoor place to train. So, yeah, it's a Ninja Warrior gym. We do obstacle training, like, for Tough Mudder and Spartan and stuff like that. It's really neat. We got all the obstacles, Platinum rig. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a really fun, fun place. And I think it's really helped with my, uh, grip strength in particular and just continue to uh, get better on the obstacles by actually doing them. Cause I think that's a big component that, um, it has just been hugely helpful, at least for me just to get that technique and, um, work on the grip strength while having fun rather than just, uh, hanging from a pull-up bar. Cause although that's effective, it, you know, <laughs> and it's good for your mental strength. It can be tough.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, it's not the same just kind of hanging and doing stationary movements on a pull up bar. You know, the, the pulling motion and the transition and everything, you know, it's the more specific you can get the training, the better. So, obviously, a place like Van City OCR or, you know, any other ninja gyms or permanent obstacle course facilities is always a good option for training. So,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: All right, Allison, well, thanks for coming on. We will check in with you in about two weeks and then we will release this episode. Um, Best of luck. Actually, I'm not going to say that because I don't believe in luck. I think you make your own luck. But I know you're going to do well in Iceland. So go crush it. And I'm curious to see how it turns out.
1: Super. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. And yeah, it's going to be pretty neat coming back and recapping the event and yeah, comparing the two. I love this idea. And thanks for for uh, sort of letting me be a part of it.
0: And we are back on the Strength and Speed podcast. It's been a week and a half since. The first part of the episode that we just recorded. So now we have Allison Ty back on the line post Iceland. Allison, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks. Thanks again for having me.
0: Yeah, let's. Um, before we get into the actual race, let's talk about some of the results. So I'm just gonna kind of run down the top five men and top five women with their mileages uh, based off what Spartan posted on their website. So for the men, it was. Joshua Fiore with 71 miles. Pavel Polency. I'm probably butchering all these names, with 71 miles. David Dietrich, 71 miles. Chris Lemke, 64 miles. And Robert Killian in fifth, 64 miles. And for the women, we had first place Morgan McKay with 57 miles. Sorry, someone's calling me in the middle of the podcast. (laughs) Vanessa Gebhardt uh, with 57 miles. Allison Tai with 57 miles, uh, Katrin Thomas-Daughter with 50 miles, and Lillian Keller with 50 miles. So I think think we overestimated the mileage (laughs) based off of part one. I can't remember the exact numbers we said, but I think we were saying like men in the night, like around 90 and women around 70 or 80. I can't remember what we said.
1: Yeah, I feel like we said, now we'll have to look back, that's so funny, but I think we said, like, women around, uh, in the days leading up, we were saying women around 60, and then men around 75, Ah. but not in the last podcast.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I probably should have listened to that one beforehand, anyway, people right now are listening at their home, being like, you just said it two minutes ago, you know, yelling at their phones, or their, uh, Yeah, Yeah. but, okay, so... Let's start off with you. How was your race? So, how did you feel?
1: I felt really good. Um, so, obviously, I had just come off uh, World's Toughest Mudder, and so basically, between the two races, all I did was recover, you know, and then um, kind of that blended into my um, taper period. So, I was actually surprised; my body felt pretty good going in, um, and uh, and so that wasn't uh, wasn't a big issue, but. Um, the course itself was like, <laughs> treacherous. It was super, super icy. Um, and the, the conditions were obviously, um, just really extreme. So it was a, it was a difficult race. It was a challenging race, but, um, I was in really good spirits the entire time. And so that was kind of my A goal going into this. I know, um, I had a, you know, a really good performance for me this year at World Toughest Mudder, but, um, I just didn't really like, soak in the experience you know I wasn't I didn't really feel like I was there and uh, just really absorbing and appreciating each you know a piece of the race so for this one I just really wanted to go and like kind of soak up the experience and and just really be there mentally and just um be really grateful for the experience of being there and I think um I think I did really well at that I was in really good spirits the whole time and you know I just had had a blast really appreciated the um the fact that we we're in such a different terrain like it was just so unique there was nothing like it we were running past these geysers that kept on going off you know constantly and just the uh, the northern lights coming up later into the race and just the terrain that you'd never seen you know there's there was no trees it was super barren uh obviously there was lots of ice and snow and rock everywhere and it was just um yeah, it was just a really really cool experience when you looked up and uh kind of realized where you were
0: yeah i mean i think again you touched on a very important point the mental aspect of, you know, ultra distance racing and going in there with a strong mind and really enjoying the experience probably helped you perform and bounce back quicker uh, than maybe some of our peers who did both races. And also, obviously, a huge congratulations. Back-to-back finishes at 24-hour World Championship level OCRs a month apart is very impressive. So that's that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I think, um, especially, you know, like if you're doing two races or really any race at that distance, um, you kind of have to go easy on yourself, right? And if you go in with these, like, crazy expectations for your performance and um, everything's going to be a letdown, right? And just, like, really, um, you know, you don't uh, go easy enough on yourself and you're just so obsessed with whatever the result is and and this expectation of how you're going to do, you're just going to have a miserable time. So I think just kind of going easy on yourself and kind of lowering your expectations. Um, I did a bunch of talking on how you – do the back-to-back races and I'm certainly no expert but I think that's that's a huge part of it because so much of a 24-hour race is mental so I think just to cut yourself some slack and go out there and just enjoy particularly the second race um, is just super important and it's hard when you're in Iceland to you know have a miserable time anyways because it's just like you know the wind was blowing at one point Morgan and I were running together um, at the top of the mountain and it really felt like we were going to blow right off like I would not have been surprised if both of us just got picked up and blew right off the mountain. The wind was so strong. And um, just like, you know, one lap, it would be like this intense wind, and you're like, okay, so this is going to be it. This is how the rest of the race is going to go. And then the next race, there's like zero wind, but it's like raining. And then the next race is like, or the next lap, it's like hail, right? So each lap had such like a distinct story, right, um, that it just really made it interesting that you you just weren't even sure what you were heading out in for the next lap. Um, but it was all super intense like it wasn't just like a little drizzle it was like crazy sideways blowing rain when it was raining right and it you know the hail was like big and sharp and you know everything it seemed like was just like super intense um, so it just made it really fun to try to kind of guess what was coming next um, and then obviously uh, just with the amount of gear that we had thankfully most of us um, that we were pretty well prepared so it was you know despite how intense the the conditions were. i think everybody was really well prepared for it gear wise and i think that kind of went a long way
0: yeah someone posted a video earlier today this is what's thursday the 21st like showing one of the windstorms and it was it looked pretty bad like it looked you're right it looked like people were about to get lifted up and blown off the mountain
1: yeah i was doing the monkey bars at one point i think morgan was actually there with me at this point as well and um you know it's like the ones with the kind of gap that go up and down and uh just before one of the gaps, a gust came at me, and so it literally, like, blew me backwards instead of forwards, um, and then, so I stopped, but I had to kind of regain, remo- like, my um, my motion, and then the the gust changed and went at me at the side, and I kind of, like, did, like, the human flag, and I'm, you know, sitting there holding up to these monkey bars, blowing in every rich direction, you know, and you're kind of trying to time the gust to, like, keep moving forward. It was, yeah, it was pretty hilarious. Or uh, the spear throw was like ridiculous. Morgan and I got there. We ran a lap together, and when we got there, it was like, okay, so we're gonna throw this spear, and somehow, in a hundred mile wind, it's gonna, it's gonna. I know there's somebody that threw it. They stood at the very end. They threw it, and it hit the spear, hit the bale, three rows down. <laughs> so I had to like, you know, really account for the wind, but.
0: Yeah, I think if I would have gone, I would have been doing burpees every lap because of that spear throw. That is not my forte. I do not practice it enough uh, to, to really get it pretty much ever. So,
1: Yeah, I'm usually like – I am I more get the spear throw than I don't. Um, but there it was like – it was really tricky until the wind died down and then I got it a few times. But uh, in the gusts like that, there's I actually waited one time until the wind died down and as soon as the spear left my hand, another gust came. So I was like, forget it. Next time, I'm just – Throwing and praying.
0: So one of the things they did interesting was they had a passport book, right, and they would mark if you failed the obstacle and you had to do all your burpees at the end of each lap. How did that work out, and did you did you like that, or would you have preferred to do the burpees at the obstacle that you failed?
1: Um, I, I think everybody would have preferred to do the burpees at the obstacle, um, just because then they wouldn't have stacked up. But... Did I like that we had to do that? Yes, you know, um, just because it was so miserable. So, yeah, you'd go and you'd get these little, you'd collect these little stamps. And I had it backwards at first, but figured it out. Um, And so each obstacle that you did out of these six obstacles, you could get a burpee. So I I knew somebody that, uh, I was talking to somebody that did 180 one lap when it was, like, raining or something. He was slipping all over the place and ended up doing 180. The most I ever did was 90, and that was more than enough. Um, But, yeah, so then you go in and you turn it in at the end, and then they, stamp it with the final three burpees and then uh yeah you have to go ahead and do all those burpees back to back and it was like in the rockiest wettest pit like it was like you're like in a puddle with really sharp rocks so it's just like miserable but that's kind of what made it fun like it was like this pit of like burpee misery at the end of each lap and uh, so that was the only time where I was like oh my goodness I, I could not be in a good mood at that pit. but the rest of it Um, I was yeah yeah, in quite a good mood except for that one so yeah it was cold it was miserable it was wet but it was it was really sparring and I think it really like kind of helped shape the event Um, I don't know that they'll do it in the future but you can see how that would have been so much easier to um, account for proper burpees like just having everybody there at the end with the cameras rather than having all these elites out on course and you know you don't know who's doing the proper burpees and they're looking at all these cameras and they had to have so many more volunteers and I know obviously it's really hard to get volunteers at a race like Iceland Um, and so I was super impressed with Spartan being able to pull it off um, and us not really see that lack of volunteers so I think that they kind of you know they did everything right in terms of minimizing the volunteers that they had and that was part of it and I mean all the elites were on the same playing field that we all did our burpees at the end open racers were able to complete their burpees at the obstacles and they did Um, but so, you know, it was a level playing field and it definitely was more challenging stacking them up at the end, but that kind of, yeah, kind of made it fun.
0: So with, you know, with the distinction between open and elite for a 24 hour event, did people, I guess obviously people had to sign up for one or the other beforehand. So I guess my, what's my question? Um, you know, like our world's toughest motor, sometimes people who were not expecting to be up there are up there, like near the top of the the field. Yeah. Um,
1: I wouldn't have been able to qualify. So they had, like, separate bibs and everything. So the the open racers actually had these, like, super slick black bibs, and we had these, like, god-awful fuchsia and green bibs. They were so bad. Um, So, yeah, if you were an open racer, you had a black bib, and you were totally running a different race, right? You are just running the finish. There was no crossover; like you couldn't just jump from open to elite. just like in a regular Spartan race. How you like start in a different heat? It was it was the same similar. It was a setup like that where you couldn't just like jump into a lead all of a sudden. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: Cool. And then you said the the terrain. I heard the terrain was pretty gnarly as far as elevation and ice. Uh, just oh. take us through some of that.
1: Oh my god! So um, we had this like little five k prologue through the uh, streets, which was super cool in this little town. But I was so ready for the Iceland experience that – and it took me – this took me a, a long while. I'm not very smart, and I'm super clumsy. So we're running through this, like, 5K road race, and I went to take a corner, and I was looking up, and I went down just like a sack of bricks um, just because the ground was super icy. Um, and so that was my first fall, and then you get to um, to the start of the race, basically. And so that 5K, that was it for running, pretty much, for me. That it was just, like, power hiking the whole time um, because it was super slick, and if there was an area that didn't have too much ice, there was a lot of rocks and, like, these really hard clumps, and you weren't really sure if you were going to put your foot directly on black ice. So it wasn't like, you know, we have ice here that's, like, kind of, like, hard and crispy, and you can kind of, like, it's slippery, but it's not that slippery. You can still kind of get a little bit of traction. This was, like like black ice with like a layer of water on top of it for the most part. And then things would freeze and then unfreeze and then, you know, like into the morning they'd freeze again. And so it just ended up being like super slick the entire way on the course. Um, so, yeah, if there's any sort of a camber or whatever, you were going down um, and you hit a patch of ice. So I think, I mean, people were falling like a hundred times on a hop, right? Like just like stand up, down, stand up, down. And then the, with the elevation, um You know, you're trying to climb this hill and you ended up having to like bear crawl, but like, so you'd be looking for rocks that stuck out enough or at least that you could like, um, like get some, you grab the upper side of the rock so that you wouldn't slide down. It would at least stop you mostly from sliding. So you grab that with your hand and then you like put your foot where your hand was because there's like very limited holds and everything else is just sheer ice and you're on the side of this mountain. So you'd like replace it and then like look for, and it was just like, Oh my goodness, it was just crazy, and then on the way down, obviously, it was just terrifying, because it's like rocks and sheer ice, like, that's all you got, right, and even the rocks had this, like, black sheen of ice on them, um, so a lot of people were just crab walking or just, like, sitting on their bums and going down, but with all the rocks, um, I was pretty cautious about that at, uh, World's Toughest Mudder the year I busted up my knee, so last year, I, uh, they had one, they had a tarp, and they had rocks under the tarp, and I hit a rock with uh, my sit bone on one side and my hamstring on that side is still not hundred percent. Cause I just totally cracked it. Um, so I'm super cautious. I don't want to break my tailbone or <laughs> some rocks. So I kind of tried to like crab walk sideways and, but it was, it was super slow moving. And then there's so many heavy carries and it was still like, um, really, really icy. So you're like walking with this sandbag. Sometimes I'd put the sandbag on my back and just crawl if it was really, um, slick, but yeah, it was, the ice was a huge factor. Um, and just really made it challenging, especially for those of us. Like, I'm very cautious just because I'm so clumsy. Um, And, yeah, it it, it got a little tiring after you fell down so many times. You'd just be like, I just don't want to fall again, (laughs) poof, down on your back, right? (laughs) like, oh, man. So, yeah, it definitely gave it some character.
0: How did you deal with the time zone change? I know, you know, you flew in pretty much right before, a day before the race or, you know, a day and a half, and then – had to go into a new time zone, but at the same time, it was dark for most of the race, like 20 hours, right? So how, yeah. how did that, did, did you feel the uh, effect of jet lag or anything on the course?
1: Um, you know, with the mandatory meeting, we had to go up um, and be at the this convention center for like three in the afternoon or something. So I think if I wouldn't, if like if we wouldn't have had to do that, I just would have slept my normal sleeping pattern here. Um, but uh, that you know kind of broke things up so my strategy really and I think most people's strategy was just sleep as much as you can so you know I just went back to the hotel and I just slept when I could and when I couldn't I just you know stretched or tried to relax and not stress out about the fact that we're all going to be jet-lagged and we're not getting enough sleep and yada yada but yeah I was not like not enough sleep and even after the race I don't think a lot of people slept very well so coming back here I was kind of like okay so I need to get a good night's sleep because I don't think for the entire space of the trip, I slept more than three hours. But, you know, your body just deals with it. And it's funny because it's like people are like, oh, don't you worry about the race and the jet lag? And I'm like, it's 24 hours. Like at some point, everybody's going to be tired. And when I'm like being at one in the morning because, you know, I'm super jet lagged, other people are going to be tired, like the people from Germany and, you know, Sweden. Those people are going to be tired when we're awake. So, at, you know, at some point, everybody gets a chance to feel like garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so i will like, well, I'll even out. I, yeah.
0: I know I feel terrible after every 24-hour race. Like I never sleep good for a night or two. It's just my body aches every time I move, something hurts. My sleep schedule is all messed up. I'm I'll wake up in the middle of the night hungry because you know y- your body was used to just burning a ton of fuel, so like you don't you can't eat enough. I don't know.
1: Yeah, your hormones are so messed up too. Like I just find I feel like uh for days. I actually wasn't I felt like more jet lagged than I did just burnt out from this race. So I don't know. Like, I didn't have the typical World's Toughest matter where I just feel like I have the flu or something. I just kind of felt more like I was jet-lagged and really tired. And maybe that's just because I was so jet-lagged and tired. It kind of, like, masked it. But, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I think for World's Toughest, it's the it's the constant dunking in water that plus the exposure to the elements that gets you. Um, yeah. Because I, I've done a whole bunch of other 24-hour OCRs this year, and... You know, I've never—I don't get sick after any of them, but I get sick every single year after World's toughest without fail. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's something magical there. <laughs> <laughs> like skin all peels off and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if that happens in Atlanta. Like if it's the repeated dunking or the repeated dunking with the stand. I don't know, but.
0: Yeah, and if the skin peels off, I'm curious about that too. It'll be it'll be interesting. De- definitely different conditions. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, what about the obstacles? I know. Um, Did Spartan debut any new obstacles, or was it the standard Spartan affair? How was that?
1: Standard, but I think a lot of people were surprised at how many obstacles they bring out. So um, they thought, uh, at least the chatter I was hearing, was that they weren't going to be able to do a big build. So it would be very basic, like old school Spartan. So we'd have like a wall and a rope climb, and you know maybe a small rig. But they had like every obstacle was full size. They had like three sections of Twister. They had. Um, multi-rig, rope climb, um, m- the monkey bars, um, just stack the Tyrolean, Hercoist, and then they had a lot of heavy, heavy stuff. So they had two long sandbag carries, and the sandbags were frozen. So they were more like Atlas stone carries because they were like frozen in this like awful giant football <laughs> type um, situation. And so like holding them on your neck was so hard because they weren't forming around your you know, structure, so and, and long, long carries. And then they had a bucket carry uh, with capped buckets, and they had this crazy thing. So they had a plate drag, and then going back out on your next lap, they had this crazy thing right after the transition zone where you had a standard-sized female Yokohama tire, you know, the ones that some females even struggle with flipping, and you had to drag it backwards, <laughs> like an Atlas carry, like that distance. And then do five burpees and then drag it back. So, and it's funny because if you were on slick ground, that was good for the tire, but then you would slide. And uh, it was just, that one was just, it gassed me every time because, yeah, I I have enough trouble flipping those tires, forget dragging them. But, uh, you know what, I did it, so that's good. Um, Yeah, lots of heavy stuff and uh, lots of ice. And I think that was, like, the, the big challenges of this race. Um, the other obstacles, I mean, Twister wasn't really rotating very good. I don't know if it was Frozen. Some people were getting it. Um, some of the top guys, I think, got it. But um, for the most part, I think everybody was coming off Twister. And, uh, yeah, the rig was pretty basic. It was all rings. So I think most people got that one. And it was right near the finish line, which totally helped. Um, yeah, and then they just had a bunch of ladders and just other stuff to gas you. It was actually pretty stacked with obstacles outside of that one huge climb, which is pretty standard for Spartan. Right, is that they don't put anything on that big climb, and I don't know how they would have even put anything because it was slid down the hill. But
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're on the Canadian Spartan Pro team, correct?
1: Yeah. So well, I was last year.
0: Oh, you was you were last year. You're not on this year?
1: Uh, well, I don't really. We haven't. Um, they haven't released it yet. Okay, um, for
0: 2018, it, you're talking. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so for
1: 2017, I was on the Spartan team for Canada. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Any? So I guess I'll start off with this. Any word if they're going to go back to Iceland for a 24-hour race next year? I don't
1: think they are joking about Antarctica, and uh, I'm not really sure if that was a joke, or I think my <laughs> sense of humor, like 23 hours into <laughs> a 24-hour race is a little uh, screwed up, but I don't know. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. It's hard to, uh, hard to say. It would be hard to beat such a... Uh, amazing venue, but, uh, and I think if they do, that, you know, they're going to have a, have sellouts pretty fast up on the website, just because it was, they did a really, really good job, and it was a really cool place to be. Cool.
0: Um, so if, let's say they, if they went back to Iceland next year, would you go back, even if it was a month past World's Toughest? Like, do we, are you happy with that decision?
1: Uh, I mean, I was happy with that decision this year. I'm so glad that I did it. I'm not sure... Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what I will do next year if they go back to Iceland and it is one month out. Um, I'm definitely glad that I did it this year. I'm just not sure 100% that I'll repeat that. <laughs> um, maybe if I do go back next year, I'm just gonna wear like a big Michelin man suit so that when I fall, it doesn't hurt as much. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we'll see. I, I mean, I would love to go back, but it is, it's a ways from Vancouver, BC. And, uh, it, just being a month out from World's Toughest, it'll probably be another one of those, depends how, you know, how my body heals from world toughest this year. I bounced back pretty, pretty quick. I felt okay. Um, obviously even if you feel okay, you're not a hundred percent. Um, and I get that, but, uh, you know, we'll see if I feel like it's going to cause injury for me to do. And then that's always going to be a no. Right. So,
0: yeah. So uh, back here, you know, I was, I was checking up on the live feeds and stuff like that and checking the results online over the weekend. And, uh, I just felt wrong not being at a 24 hour race. Like I felt like I was, I felt like I was like, Skipping work or something, it it, it it was really weird being back here being like, Whoa, oh, I, you know, I don't know what's going on. I'm physically not there." So,
1: would you have done all of the 24-hour OCR races if you had done this one? Uh,
0: yes, in 2017. If that's I
1: that's crazy. Oh, so I, can't believe
0: it. I did all of them over a 365-day span. So, if you take from World's Toughest last year to World's Toughest this year, it was uh, six 24-hour races. Uh, and I finished top 10 in all of them. So that was like my.
1: My goodness. That is insane. Th- that is consistent too. Wow.
0: So the. You know, I was on the fence for a long time about Spartan Iceland. And then after World's Toughest, I just felt like I'd been. I felt like I had drained so much out of my body. You know, and I was just. Um, I don't know. You're lo- just
1: kind of getting in at the end of the season. And yeah, it's not time for another race at that point, right?
0: Yeah. And like, I feel like I put it all out there on World's Toughest and I. I've just gotten so used to you know, going all in on that single event and then being like, "and I'm done." Like, I, I need to take a break. So. Um.
1: Yeah, I think we're all so programmed, at least for us endurance racers, that after World's toughest, it's like, all right, the wheels come off, and it's time to like, you know, bring it in and make sure that we're recovered for the next year. Yeah. Yeah, I could not.
0: <laughs> so. So speak. Speaking of, what do you have planned for, twenty uh, eighteen? Like, what are you do, what, what's your training going to be like for the next month? And then kind of what are your big plans for 2018?
1: I'm going to take the rest of December off, just super easy, um, and just kind of recover it, which is super weird to me because between World's Toughest Mudder and um, this race, I took it pretty easy. Um, but, you know, maybe some, like, strength training and just doing other things, but more just to keep the mind fresh because I think even though, like, I, I was just in recovery mode between World's Toughest and Spartan Iceland, Um, it still does take a little bit out of you kind of emotionally and almost you need, and I feel like my body's pretty recovered outside of the knee that I hit so many times. Um, when I was coming down, I kept on landing on the same knee, so it's really swollen and just really bruised up. But, um, you know, that's just an external thing and it'll heal up. but I think mentally, you kind of, and emotionally, you almost need this, like, little break off. So maybe I'll do some strength training and whatever to the end of December. And then January, I'll be with the resolutioners picking it back up and uh, get ready for L.A. So I'll be doing Toughest L.A. And I'm going to do as many of the toughest series as I can. But I also am doing the um, OCR World Championships in Jiro, the 24 in Australia. So that'll probably be my big race for, you know, the beginning of the year. And that'll be... Um, like my early season 24, and then I'll do World's Toughest. And that's my plans. but I don't know. If Spartan adds in a 24 again next year, which I'm feeling like they will, then maybe I'll have to have to throw that on the schedule too. But for right now, it's really my big focus is OCR 24 and World's Toughest, and then I really want to do some of the Toughest series as well. But it seems like they all fall in June, so <laughs> yeah. there's only something that can be done in June. And I signed up already for the OCR 24 when um, the Toughest series came out. So. Ah, nice. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I think Spartan will add a, a twenty-four hour race again next year. I'm not. I don't. If if I had to put on my look at my crystal ball, I would say it wouldn't be Iceland, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Um,
1: yeah, I feel like they may move it, but yeah, I don't know why I feel that way though.
0: So. Cool. Well, that was pretty cool. Any other insights or experiences you want to share from the Iceland race?
1: No, I think uh, I think we both covered it. Just want to say, like, big congrats to Morgan and Josh because those guys just crushed it. Like, it was inspiring watching Morgan McKay just fly through that. She's so strong and uh, so powerful, and she has been training so hard for so many years to win, um, you know, like a top-level endurance championship, and she's just put in so much work. Um, and it's just really neat to be able to um, watch her be able to you know like just cruise through an event like this and just yeah just see all that training pay off so that was that was neat to be a part of just you know watching her um put it all together this race uh because she just she was so strong uh both mentally and physically the whole race it was super cool and then josh at the same time who uh, won the male side he was um yeah he was just cruising through and just kind of crushing it and staying strong so it was need to be a part of that, so congratulations to both of them. And strangely, both of them got engaged this weekend. I kid you not. Josh proposed to his girlfriend or fiancé now at the finish line, and Morgan's fiancé proposed to her after. <laughs> <So> after <laughs> both, both of the champions ended up getting engaged. So huge congrats to them for the race and for this huge life event that they're about to uh, to undertake
0: yeah, I was super happy for Morgan, especially after her getting knocked out of World's Toughest this past year. So that, exactly,
1: you know, she worked so hard, um, and so yeah, it's just it's really cool that she was able to take it and just put that all together.
0: I'm also kind of looking at the results right now and realize that Morgan beat Vanessa by five minutes and twenty seconds. Which no. is no. Was
1: she, I know it shows that in the results, but she was like way ahead. Oh, okay. And, uh, so there, here's the thing: um, if you had until twelve o'clock to come in for your last lap, if you weren't at twelve o'clock, like if you were in twelve o one, you DNF'd, DQ'd, I guess. Okay. Uh, so your count, you would not count. Um, so she and you had to go up by nine for your last lap. Uh, you had to be out at nine for your last lap. But I don't think Spartan totally took into account how long each lap would take. Like, each lap was, like, at least two to three hours, right? And that's, like, at a pretty blistering pace. So she just came in kind of on that bubble where she had, like, three and a half hours to complete a lap, which is enough. But she would have had to, like, kind of haul it, right? And if she would have twisted an ankle and had to walk a bit or whatever, she would have DQ'd. So she actually sat at the finish line. Like, uh... half a half waited, but she had to wait until 9, and Vanessa was pushing to get her burpees done so that she could get out there before 9 and race the last lap. So Morgan is, like, in this, like, horrible, like, do I go, do I stay? So she ended up staying, and I think uh, Vanessa was just over that 9 o'clock mark, and they figured that out when she was doing her burpees. So as soon as 9 o'clock hit, Morgan sprinted across the finish line, and then Vanessa had to finish her burpees before Crossing, so yeah, it's just it was a funny way that it worked out, and I think Spartan's not going to do that in the future. And they kind of realized that there was that hiccup that you know could potentially happen again, but uh it worked out fine for Morgan. But yeah, she was way ahead. It's just she uh she had to wait till nine o'clock to cross the finish line.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Thanks for explaining that. That that makes it much more clear. Uh, I know
1: other are like five minutes, what? But no, she's yeah. sitting around like half an hour.
0: Because because yeah. that that's the thing on the, these ultra races. Like you're never quite sure where everyone is, so you're always like. Am I? Is someone about to pass me? Is someone picking up strength in the second half of the race? So five yeah. minutes in a 24-hour race is like... I mean, Not that's like lot. seconds in a sprint, right? When you look at the percentage awful, of the race.
1: Right? It would have been awful if Vanessa did make it under that cusp and could go out again because then they would have been battling to go sub-three hours on this and Morgan would be cold because she's standing around, right? So trying to get like back up to speed would have been a big challenge. So she could have just passed her because of this, like, you know, this crazy rule thing. Um, But it didn't happen, and Morgan took it, thankfully, because, you know, she had uh, had worked so hard for it, it would have just been, like, crazy if they would have had to, like, battle it out on the last lap. It would have been entertaining for people to watch, but, uh, yeah.
0: So last question. Now, I don't recognize a lot of these names. I'm assuming some of them are European. Um, Did, like... You know, World's Toughest, we generally know who's in top contention, and, you know, you kind of know a little bit about them, so you, you know if they're going to kind of gain or slow down towards the end. Was that challenging or interesting, like, not knowing who these people are, or do you know, do you know a lot of the other top females uh, besides Morgan?
1: Um, yeah, no, I really just knew Morgan, um, but I, I, it was pretty easy to see Vanessa it was, like, a ball of <laughs> energy. She, she was pretty awesome. And uh, I think she's David Dietrich's girlfriend. Um, So a lot of people kind of knew her and were like, oh, yeah, she's, you know, she was just cruising and looking great, Um, just really fit and uh, really energized. So I don't know. And I wasn't, like, in it to, like, win it necessarily, right? Like, I was just kind of more there for the experience. So I wasn't really stressing about where anybody was or how fast they were or, you know, trying to make any plans like that. I was just kind of like, well, this is what I got today. I'm just going to, like, you know, try to minimize my falling and, uh, you know, try to keep a decent pace. And so I just kind of more focused on me anyways. But it was kind of neat seeing, like, you know, the lady from in fourth was from Iceland. So, you know, she was on her home turf and how she kind of reacted differently. And um, I didn't get to figure out much on the men's side just because the laps were so long and I wasn't really hearing a lot of what was happening. So sometimes I like when I'm racing to kind of follow along on the men's side just because it gives me something – else to uh to kind of focus on but i wasn't really able to do that this race but josh i think it's from I, I think he's from world's toughest community i've seen him everywhere he's a superb athlete um so i i knew him and then um yeah um I, david dietrich has just been in the community a lot so um you know i've seen him quite a bit those guys are like superior power hikers and very strong so it's not a wonder that they just ripped this course up but, uh, yeah, there was definitely a lot of Europeans and stuff like that that I didn't know, and that was kind of neat. Or even just when you're walking along in the course um, and you strike up a conversation with somebody and it's kind of like, you know, in broken English or you're like, you know, you trying to like have a conversation and uh, figure out what words <laughs> to kind of use. I think that's kind of the neat part, right, is just meeting um, so many uh, new people from new places. And a race like this, you're kind of just immersed. Um, and Europe has so many different cultures and you know, so many different, uh, so many different countries that are are so cultural and just pocketed out that you do really get to meet a people from a wide variety of circumstances, and I think that's kind of one of the magic pieces of a race like this.
0: Cool. Well, sounds like it was a great experience. Thanks again for coming on. Any uh, final shout-outs you want to give before we sign off?
1: No, just Morgan and Josh, way to rock it, and uh, anybody that you know went out there and and uh, completed any amount of laps. I know a lot of people were shooting for 50, like in the world's toughest community, and kind of got, like, rocked um, that that's not going to happen. But uh, 30 was the new 50, and a lot of people (laughs) made it to 30, which was pretty awesome. And even if you made one lap, I mean, that was an intense course. So you guys should be feeling pretty proud of yourself, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, I think we'll see that again in Atlanta where the the baseline changes, you know, with – as far as you know, what's attainable for you know the the average participant showing up, and uh, I mean you can see that you can see that at the top l- level, the world's toughest winner had 110, and the Spartan uh, Iceland had 71, and a lot of that has to do with just course variation. You know, the ability to run and elevation change and obstacle yeah. density and weather. There's I mean there's so many factors. I mean when I when I was doing Battlefire Extreme, I Won a race with I think four laps. It was in Cincinnati, and then yeah. I came in third in the North Carolina one with seven laps, right? Because it was oh,
1: yeah, it was panc
0: it was pancake flat. But I mean, same obstacles basically, different terrain, different weather, and uh, you know, pretty different placements despite the significantly more miles I ran at the other venue. So
1: it makes such a big difference. Like there was just nowhere to run on this course. Um, and so that really took us runners out at the knees which is kind of cool right like there's a lot of obstacle races it depends on being able to run between obstacles and then make it across the obstacles efficiently and for this one it wasn't it was like how you know can you make it it was like a constant obstacle right so I think that was kind of neat even as a runner you know I I totally appreciated the fact that um, it was not a runner's course and it was a totally new challenge for 24 hours to not be able to run and just kind of get into that like groove and to kind of always be challenged by the terrain it's kind of a neat you know
0: feature cool well it was great hearing from you and i'm gonna try to push this out hopefully today or tomorrow so uh give people an update as far as how iceland was so again thanks allison for coming on looking forward to seeing you at several of the toughest events next year and uh yeah you too have a merry christmas and a happy new year
1: you as well enjoy the holidays Nice to have some downtime. We need that.
0: Yeah, no kidding.